This is Mark chapter 14, verse 32, on page 851, Bible there with you. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you, for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. David.
Good morning. Please pray with me before we dive into um, this text this morning. Let's pray first. Our Lord Jesus, we praise you that you are the one who calls yourself the man of sorrows. That you are the one who not only knows our pain and our suffering, but you know precisely what to do with it. Precisely how to meet us in it. And so, Lord, I pray that as we think about this moment in your life, that you would bless us, that you would give us the grace of knowing you as the one who comes near to us, near to the brokenhearted, near to the struggling, near to the wavering, near to the weak, near to those in unspeakable pain. And Lord, that you would meet us in this, uh, this morning in that way. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. When I was probably around 10 or 11, I remember my dad brought home a book that was kind of intriguing to me. Um, and it was a book, it was just called Where's Waldo? And I, I remember he would, you know, open the book and we would look. If you've ever done that game or seen those books where you just, you're trying to, in a sea of, of, of people trying to find this little hipster-looking guy with the glasses and the scarf and the little hat. And I remember it was really, you know, I loved it. I loved the game. I loved trying to find Waldo. I wasn't very good at it, um, but I loved trying. And I think in, in this week, the last really two weeks for me, has been some version of that, um, but so much more serious game with much more serious stakes. And, and the game that I would call it is simply, where's, where's Jesus in a season in my life um, of really of suffering, of a place in ministry, being in ministry for 12 years, the hardest thing I've ever gone through in ministry, and asking that question, where's Jesus? Where does Jesus, in our moments of unspeakable pain and suffering, where's Jesus in our places of just great struggle and confusion and anger and sadness? Where is Jesus in those places? And and part of what I love about just the chance to not, not just study this text, but to, 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 to try to preach it, is I think this passage, Jesus in Gethsemane, gives us a beautiful answer of how Jesus, where Jesus is in our pain and suffering. You know, I think when you think about different worldviews when it comes to suffering, there are lots of answers that I think affect us. You can think about Buddhism's approach saying suffering basically is an illusion, that it's good for us, but it's not really real. Or you think about you know, religious worldviews that hold to an idea of karma that basically, basically says suffering comes to those who deserve it. You know, suffering is some sort of divine payback. Or even thinking just about secularism and what that might say, just that suffering is kind of random, therefore meaningless. And I think Jesus this morning has something very, very different for us. Very different. And I just want you to see three things that I think this passage says to us about Jesus and the way he meets us in our suffering. The first thing I want you to see is that Jesus suffered with us. Jesus suffered with us. He knows what it's like. This passage makes it so clear. Jesus in Gethsemane, he knows what it's like to go through a moment of unspeakable pain. When Luke's version of this passage, he, he says it like this. That he says that in Jesus' suffering, that he was in such agony that he prayed more earnestly. 
and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. In other words, Jesus knows what it's like to, to, he feels what it's like to be the psalmist in Psalm 102, where the psalmist writes, For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I'm like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. Jesus knows what it's like to pray earnestly to the Father from a place of, unlike us, pure heartedness, pure righteousness, pure holiness, and to get no reply. To pray his heart out and to get nothing but silence. I think about, I don't know if you've ever had the chance to read Shusako Endo's um, great novel, Silence. It's, it's a book that's set uh, with these Jesuit missionaries who are going to proclaim the gospel in Japan. And these two young priests have heard rumors that their great giant in the faith, Ferreira, that he has apostatized. That the rumors coming out of Japan as he spent 30 years there proclaiming the gospel, but in a moment of weakness he rejected the faith. And they're, they're on this journey to find him, to find out if this is just propaganda or it's true. And in this beautiful scene toward the end, this agonizing scene toward the end, they finally find him. And they have so many questions. Because it turns out the story is true. He has apostatized. He has publicly renounced Jesus. And they're asking him why he did it. And he begins to describe the suffering of those being persecuted for their faith. And, and the scene that, in this particular scene, he's been in these pits where men and women have been hung upside down for days and days and days and he says he when he's trying to go to sleep he thinks he hears snoring but instead of snoring as he goes to check the pit it's just the blood that is dripping from the heads of these men and women and here's what Ferreira says in, in terms of why he apostatized he says this I did pray this priest asked him did you did you not pray for them and he says I did pray and I kept on praying but prayer did nothing to alleviate their suffering. Prayer does nothing to alleviate suffering. And in this moment in Jesus' life, there's a part of him that relates to us in this. I think about one of my favorite Andrew Peterson songs. It's just simply the song called The Silence of God. Here's how he says it. He's, he's pondering that idea when we praying our hearts out, pouring our hearts out, and God seems to be nowhere doing nothing. Here's how he says it. He says, It's enough to drive a man crazy. It'll break a man's faith. It's enough to make him wonder if he's ever been sane. When he's bleeding for comfort from thy staff and thy rod, and the heaven's only answer is the silence of God. It'll shake a man's timbers when he loses his heart, when he has to remember what broke him apart. This yoke may be easy, but this burden is not when the crying fields are frozen by the silence of God. And if a man has got to listen to the voices of the mob who are reeling in the throes of all the happiness they've got, when they tell you all their troubles have been nailed up to that cross, then what about the times when even followers get lost? Because we all get lost sometimes. And the first thing that I want you to see is 
whatever those moments have been in your life, moments where you feel nothing but the silence of God, moments where you read the lament psalms and you feel them, God, where are you? What are you doing? Do you not care for us? Do you not love me anymore? How could you let this pass into my life? And the first thing that has been unspeakable comfort to me, and I hope it is to you, is that Jesus knows that place. Jesus knows that silence. Jesus, in a sense, knows that lostness in the deepest of ways. Jesus suffers with us. He's the man of sorrows because he knows our sorrows. He has experienced them even in the deepest place in the Garden of Gethsemane. So Jesus suffered with us, but I want you to see something more than that. Jesus also suffered for us. And this is where we begin to get a picture of the uniqueness of this moment, the uniqueness of what Jesus is enduring. The fascinating thing studying this passage is that what all the commentators point out is how unhinged, how unsettled, how beside himself Jesus seems. And it's really strange. If you've read the Gospel of Mark, he's been everything but that. Jesus has been calm and composed and compassionate and confrontational and confident. All of that, all of that up until this point. And suddenly it seems like he is falling apart. It seems like he is devastated, brought to his knees with crippling anxiety and despair and true fear. And if if you're being honest with yourself in this text, it's a little unsettling. Like, think about about this. If you've ever read or heard the stories of the great martyrs of the faith. Like, do you remember the story of Polycarp? Like, Polycarp just, there's that great story out of his life. He's about to be martyred. He's about to be set on fire before a large crowd. And do you remember the famous words that he says? He says, 86 years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Or think about, if you know the story out of Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley's life, where as they're about to be burned together, do you remember the line that Latimer says? He says, play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And can we just be honest with this text for a moment and say, this is not how Jesus does things in Gethsemane. He says, Lord, Father, please, please. Take this cup from me. I can't do this. There is a, the text in English doesn't convey the horror that Jesus experiences in the garden. True horror. And I think what we have to say is, this is saying something to us about what Jesus has seen that is coming down for him in these next moments of his life. He's facing something far worse than death. He's facing something far worse than the kind of painful death he knows he's going to die. That he's facing something much, much worse. It's far worse than death. It would be more akin to what Revelation calls the second death. And what Jesus calls it in this passage is the cup. And we know it's the cup of the full wrath of the Father against our sin. Listen to the way that Bill Lane says it. He says, The dreadful sorrow and anxiety that Jesus Christ experienced in the prayer for the passing of the cup was not just an expression of fear before a dark destiny, nor of a shrinking from the prospect of the physical suffering and death. It is rather the horror 
the horror of one who lived a holy life for the Father and who came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven open up for him. Or listen to the way that Jonathan Edwards said it. The agony that Jesus Christ experienced in the garden was caused by a vivid, full, bright, immediate view of the wrath of God. God the Father set the cup before him, which was vastly more terrible than Nebuchadnezzar's furnace. He now had a a near view of that furnace into which he was about to be cast, and he stood and viewed its raging flames and the glaring of its heat, that he might know where he was going and what he was going to suffer. He felt what the prophet Nahum said, Who is it that could stand before him and abide the fierceness of his anger or his fury? which is poured out like fire. Jesus doesn't just relate to us and meet us in our places of suffering, but Jesus suffered for us. Uh, That's why Paul says in Romans 5, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ took the cup for us. Christ faced the ultimate cosmic eternal suffering that you and I deserve. I think about all the time um, there's a scene and, and my favorite it's become I think my favorite movie of all time The Iron Giant. The Iron Giant was a kids movie in the late 90s and there's a scene if you know the story at all basically it's set in kind of the, the height of the Cold War between Russia and the U.S. And this little boy, Hogarth, finds this strange iron giant just kind of crashes to earth right near his house in his hometown. And Hogarth, as he and the giant, as he finds the giant, discovers the giant, they develop this friendship. But in the same time, there's this crazed military general who is sure, they've heard reports of this giant that must be some sort of Russian operative, must be some sort of Russian spy and so this general is dead set on not just finding the giant, but destroying the giant. And the way the movie kind of, as it goes to this, the peak of the movie, the general has found the giant and they, he's brought in planes and tanks and this nuclear missile and he's chasing the giant into the town square. He's going to destroy the giant once and for all. And in this crazed moment, he has the whole town has gathered to watch the giant being chased and Hogarth and his family and the whole town is gathered watching this spectacle. The general, without thinking, hits, you know, presses the button to fire the missile. And there's this moment where the entire town realizes what's about to happen. They realize that as this missile comes back to destroy the giant, it's not just going to destroy the giant. It's going to wipe all of them off the map. And in this beautiful moment, my favorite moment in the film, the giant, as the missile is going into the very reaches of space, the giant looks at the crowd, the giant looks at Hogarth's parents, and the giant looks at his friend Hogarth. And then he lifts into the air, and he flies into the very reaches of space, and he takes this missile. And as he does right before, this is the part that kills me every time, Right before he brings this missile into himself to explode into a million pieces, he smiles. And every time I can't help but think about Hebrews 12 where it says about Jesus that he endured the cross despising its shame for the joy set before him. And I love the way one friend says it. What was that joy? 
That joy was you. And that joy was me. The gift of Gethsemane isn't just that Jesus knows. He knows. He has felt our pain and suffering. But the gift of Gethsemane is also that Jesus embraces ultimate suffering. Jesus embraces the fullness of what you and I deserve because of his joy in loving and restoring you and me. I love the way that the old, the Scottish theologian Donald MacLeod says it. He says, the wonder of the love of Christ for his people is not that for their sake he faced death without fear, but that for their sake he faced it, he faced it terrified. Terrified by what he knew and terrified by what he did not know. He took damnation lovingly. I love the way that George Herbert says it. He says, Love is that liquor sweet and most divine that my God feels as blood, but I as wine. That Jesus relates to us in our, he suffered with us, but Jesus also suffered for us. And the last thing I want you to see, what does this do for us? Jesus suffered that our sufferings might be transformed. Jesus suffered that our suffering might be changed. It might be transformed. It might do something different. It's not an illusion. It's not payback. It's not vengeance in the divine economy. And it's not random. It's not meaningless. But Jesus says, because he suffers with us and for us, he he speaks, his wounds speak to our wounds. His scars speak to our scars. That our suffering means something that doesn't mean that we know. I think sometimes this, the last few weeks, has been... It's proven to me that we can go round and round and round saying, God, what are you teaching me? What are you doing? And I think so many times we are, we are better to be like God wanted Job's counselors to be. is just to sit in silence with one another and say, sometimes life is hard and we don't have all the answers. We need more of that in our faith. And I think Jesus, so we still know that our hope is even in the places where we can't trace his hand, to use the great words of Spurgeon, even in the moments where we can't trace his hand. Because of Gethsemane, we can still trust his heart. We can trust that he loves us and knows what he's doing, even if we don't. I love the way David Pallison um, has this beautiful response that I want to close with as we think about what is this, how does it change our sufferings. And I'm just going to read something that I love from him that means a ton to me. Here's what Pallison says. He says, so often the initial reaction to painful suffering is, why me? Why this? Why now? Why? But then God comes for you in the flesh, in Christ, into suffering on your behalf. He does not offer advice and perspective from afar. He steps into your significant suffering. He will see you through. And work with you the whole way. This reality changes the questions that rise up from your heart. That inward turning why me quiets down. Lifts its, lifts its eyes and begins to look around. And you turn outward and new wonderful questions form. Why you? Why would you enter this world of evils? Why would you go through loss, weakness, hardship, sorrow and death? Why would you do this for me of all people? But you did. You did this for the joy set before you. You did this for love. You did this showing the glory of God in the face of Christ. 
And as that deeper question sinks home, you become, I love this phrase, joyously sane. Joyously sane. The universe is no longer supremely about you, yet you are not irrelevant. God's story makes you just the right size. Everything counts, but the scale changes to something that makes much more sense. You face hard things, but you've already received something better, which can never be taken away. And finally, you are prepared to pose and to mean almost unimaginable questions. Why not me? Why not this? Why not now? If in some way my faith might serve as a three-watt nightlight in a very dark world, why not me? If he sanctifies to me my deepest desires, if he bears me in his arms, if my weakness demonstrates to the power of God to save us from all that is wrong, if my honest struggle shows others how to land on their feet, if my life becomes a source of hope to others, why not me? Of course, you don't want to suffer but you've become willing. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And like him, your loud cries and tears will in fact be heard by the one who saves from death. Like him, you will learn obedience from what you suffer. Like him, you will sympathize with the weaknesses of others. Like him, you will deal gently with the ignorant and wayward like him you will display faith to a faithless world hope to a hopeless world love to a loveless world life to a dying world i love i'll close with the andrew peterson the way he ends that song the silence of god as he goes to the statue of jesus kneeling in gethsemane and here's how he closes it he says there's a statue of jesus in a monastery knoll In the hills of Kentucky, all quiet and cold, and he's kneeling in the garden as silent as a stone, and all his friends are sleeping, and he's weeping alone. And the man of all sorrows, he never forgot what sorrow is carried by the hearts. By the hearts that he bought. So when the questions dissolve into the silence of God, the aching may remain, but the breaking, the breaking does not. Let's pray together. We praise you and thank you that... You are the one who meets us in these places. And Lord, we thank you that our suffering is not illusion, it's not random. And we thank you, Lord, that you know it. And we thank you, Lord, that you work in it and through it. And we thank you most of all, Lord, that because you suffered for us, that the aching does remain. And you know that, and you meet us in that. But the breaking does not. And so, Lord, we praise you and we thank you that you would continue to meet us, wrestle with us in the places where we're angry, in the places where we are sad, in the places where we are hiding, in the places where we are distancing ourselves. Meet us in those places, Lord. We, we praise you that you pursue us in your love. Would you please never stop? We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen.
our offering. As we do, I want to invite you to turn.